This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. Joining me is Bob Holmes, writer, columnist, football pundit. You'd usually catch him on BFM 89.9's football shows, Life's a Pitch, and Thank Friday It's Football. But Bob has a brand new book out, which is why he's here today. Bob, welcome to Bookmark. It's the first time you're on the show. We usually hear you on uh, Life's a Pitch and Thank Friday It's Football. So it's a real honor to have you on my show for a change. Well, it's an honor to be here. Slightly different style here on my own. No uh, accompaniment from fellow pundits. The boys aren't here to shout you down. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bob, the book is called Living the Dream or Enduring the Nightmare. And essentially, it's all about foreign ownership of British football clubs, which... I suppose, is a topic of conversation for all football fans. Now, I came into this book completely blind. I mean, the only knowledge I have of football is when I listen to you guys and when Ezra attempts to explain something to me whenever there's a major sporting event going on. Going into this book blind, Bob, I found it an incredibly compelling read. Now, I am not a fan of football, and I still found it interesting because of the economics, the politics, the drama. You have a line in the book which goes something along the lines of the antics of owners make footballers seem dull. Footballers (laughs) crash cars, owners crash economies. Right. (laughs) Talk to me about why you decided to write about this particular topic And how long did it take you to do all of this research? Well, I decided because I thought it was a tale worth telling. And I couldn't find anywhere that it had been told. And here I am, well away from the scene. But it was something that I thought I could do with two or three judicious visits back to the UK, which I make anyway pretty much uh, annual occasions, you know. And it's a small country, and you can get around. So I wasn't really going that much out of my way. I had friends in many of the places where the clubs are. Uh, so I'd, I'd go and see um, a, a chairman in the afternoon and, and then go out with my mates at night kind of thing. So it wasn't as arduous an exercise as it may sound. But um, getting back to the reason, uh, owners used to be the most boring subject in the world. (laughs) No one, even fans, didn't even know who the owner was. Correct. He'd be a faceless, middle-aged man in a grey suit in the director's box. And as long as he signed the checks, that was fine. But then suddenly you had this intervention by Roman Abramovich. I think that was the turning point. Yeah. He came in with his billions... And everything changed. And even, I'll give you the illustration, he's not in the book, but the most graphic illustration of how helpless the existing chairman suddenly felt was the Liverpool chairman, David Moores. And to anyone who has any inkling about uh, life in the UK uh, in the 70s and 80s, the expression was... Uh, oh, 
if we win the pools, we will we may have a new car or a new house. It was like winning the lottery. Right. Well, David Moores owned the pools, <laughs> but he still didn't have enough money. And he realized this, and that's when he tried to sell Liverpool. So you had this thing, all the owners realized they just couldn't compete with the new breed of owner because Abramovich was quickly followed by various sheikhs and other billionaires. So the whole landscape was transformed. So tell me this, Bob, because that's some, this is something I've always been curious about regarding especially, I guess, British football. Was the phenomenon of British football becoming an international product? And I mean product in the sense that you have a Manchester United cafe somewhere in Kuala Lumpur, that kind of product. Was it because of this international ownership? Was that, with the internationalization of it, the, the marketing and sales of it, was it because of these owners? Or was it something that you felt would have happened because of its popularity anyway? Well, it was uh, already underway, especially Manchester United. Uh, they'd cottoned on to the uh, marketing potential uh, earlier, before Abramovich. Yes, United did. Uh, and they were way ahead of Liverpool, actually, in this regard. Uh, and that's why they can make so much money now, even though they're massively in debt. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, they've, they've got their marketing strategy and uh, even though they've not done so well in the last few years, their income is just phenomenal. In the book, you make it a point to be as neutral as possible. You lay out all of the information for me to kind of make my own decision as to whether these international owners are a good thing or a bad thing. Now, I know better than to ask you what you really think. So <laughs> what I'm going to do is ask you, how the fans feel, and how that's changed over the years. Well, of course, the moment uh, there was a rumor about some billionaire, whether he was foreign or British, um, coming into the club, of course, the fans get very excited and start thinking about which players they can sign right. and, and all that, uh, not really thinking of the negative aspect of this. But um, now, now many of them uh, failed uh, they're a little more wary. But still, uh, fans are pretty optimistic. And as soon as there's a rumor, yes, they, they will still get excited no matter what's happened. But, of course, there have been disasters. And this book, yes, I try to opt for a neutral-ish stance uh, and tell the tale. I, I think that's what journalism is about, isn't it, after all? People don't really want to know what I think. Uh, they Yes, they make up their own minds. And although the negative, it's like newspapers, it's like news. I mean, the negative always seems to carry more weight and interest than the positive. And anyone thinking this might be a bit of a Brexit operation, you know, highlighting foreign owners. No, it's not. Not at all. And I, I think I make it quite clear in the intro that without this influx of billions uh, the Premier League wouldn't be where it is now. Yeah, it's it's an expensive sport. And I think what the international owners have done is something that the Americans have done with their sport for a very, very long time. And we see it in American football. And that, 
What's the word I'm looking for? It is the commoditization of the sport, I think. And I'm of two minds of that because I think for the fans, it does serve them as well. But at the same time, it can end up being somewhat mercenary. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a huge difference. And uh, American owners, even fairly savvy American owners, have found this out. Uh, British football is a different kettle of fish. And the British I mean, fan is different. Too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what over there, okay, they're, key, they're a keen sporting nation. Yes, let's, let's not forget that. But they can shift a club or as they call it, a franchise, from the East Coast to the West. That's right. Or uh, in recent times, uh, more famously, from St. Louis, which is smack in the middle, to the West Coast, Los Angeles, which is what the Arsenal owner, Stan Kroenke, did. And without telling the fans, well, in fact, promising that he wouldn't do it. But almost overnight... Suddenly, the club you've been supporting, the club that 40-odd thousand people have been going to every other week, is no longer there. And they're playing under a different name in a different city 2,000 miles away. Now, that couldn't happen in the UK. Well, OK, we're not big enough to have a 2,000-mile shift for a start. But no, they couldn't. They, it just would not happen. They, I mean, the fans, they are zealots. Yeah. when it comes to this, and they wouldn't allow that to happen. And also in America, there's the added feature of if a city gives you a better deal with a stadium, that's also a temptation to move your team to yeah. another city, Well, that's right? what did it for Stan Kroenke. So let's go through the clubs that you talk about. Uh, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, Chelsea, Manchester City, Nottingham Forest, Portsmouth, Queen's Park, Rangers. Why these particular clubs? Was there any particular reason that you decided to focus on them? Yeah, um, I went for the stories rather than the big-name clubs. And as it happens, the, uh, yes. Uh, the the United, of, Liverpool yeah. and Arsenal, right? Well, yeah, a couple of these, these clubs are now in League, um, League One. Well, in Malaysia, I don't think anybody even looks beyond the Premier League. <laughs> so they wonder where these clubs are. You know, they've barely heard of them. But actually, the stories of Blackburn and Portsmouth in particular – are, are fantastic stories of, of the shenanigans that go on behind the scenes, which is what this book is about. I mean, Portsmouth, for instance, had five owners in just over a year. And I, I met the chairman at the time, and he said there was one guy, and we don't know until this day whether he even exists. Wow. And there was another who was on the wanted list for Amnesty International <laughs> for gun running and diamond smuggling in Angola. Uh, I mean, you know, you couldn't make this up. As I, I think I compared it in um, one of the chapters to a sort of Frederick Forsyth novel, uh, Portsmouth. So, OK, they may be languishing in League One, but I tell you, it's a heck of a tale. Wow. You know, when it comes to foreign ownership... How much has that actually affected the sport? I mean, it feels like the people who are buying these clubs may come from a fan perspective themselves and, you know, rich fans now that they can afford to own the club that they've supported for so long. Are they interfering? Do they get in the way? Has that changed the sport in any way? Yes, uh, some, some have. I mean, some are hands-on, some, uh, some have their hands around the manager's neck. Um, I mean, there's one guy, I, I didn't uh, include him in this book, but uh, 
he actually wanted to play. <laughs> I mean, he was pushing 60. Um, <laughs> he had a kick around in training, but uh, no, it, it did get ridiculous with some. But let's not focus entirely on the negative. I mean, some have transformed right. their clubs completely. And beyond just with money infusion. Yeah. They've, I mean, uh, Manchester City, for example, uh, the Sheikh, Sheikh Mansour of Abu Dhabi, uh, he's hardly put a foot wrong. They consult the fans even when they want to change the badge. Right. They keep the ticket prices low. City, despite having all this money and being top of the shop, have just about the cheapest uh, season tickets in the country. Uh, they've been meticulous. I mean, they, they've made one or two mistakes. Certainly in the transfer market, they've made a few mistakes. But basically, the way they've gone about this has been a revelation. It's not satisfied everybody. But I think most people would, would settle for the Man City owners, basically. They, they really do seem as if they actually care about the club, the history, the legacy, and all that. And th those are the sort of owners you want. No, because you paint that picture really well, Bob, because you're pretty critical and harsh about City in the 90s and, you know, the poor City fan and what they have to endure. Well, it, harsh. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, they, they laughed at themselves, though, didn't they? Yes. Um, I mean, it was self-parody City. Uh, I, I don't think any, any City fan would, would mind that. Because uh, the only way to endure it really was to, was to laugh, wasn't it? Um, and then for them, of all people, all clubs, to suddenly land the jackpot, the richest owner of the lot. Well, was there some karma going on there? <laughs> you wonder, don't you? So why not United, Liverpool and Arsenal? I guess we've heard the most about them because... Plenty of Malaysian fans won. And then, of course, uh, with United, even me, the non-football follower, was, was privy to, I guess, all of the drama when the Americans took over. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good question, obviously. Um, it really did come down to who I could get. I mean, I'm here in Malaysia and I'm reduced because I haven't worked in the UK for 25 years. I'm reduced to sort of emailing um, press officers and supporters clubs and this sort of thing and just using a few contacts that I have. And I did what I could. And I didn't get the response from those big clubs that you mentioned until I was actually sending this to the printers practically. Right. Well, the good news is for me that I have now uh, cracked those clubs and I hope to include them in a sequel. Oh, fantastic. If people buy the first one. It feels like those clubs could probably have volumes on their own. Yeah, they could. And I, in fact, I'm, uh, I started to, to write this, the sequel, if you like. And I started with Liverpool. And I've, I mean, I barely sort of wrote a, a two or three paragraphs. And I realized this could be a book in itself. And I... I'm almost certain that it will be. I just need to talk to a few more people here. And what I'm trying to do is to make this a bit more Malaysian orientated. And there is a connection with Liverpool, uh, the Kirkby uh, Teacher Training College. Uh, I understand that quite a few of those uh, teachers actually became Liverpool fans. 
And I'd like to pursue that. So if there's anybody listening to this who is a, uh, an ex-Kirkby teacher and a Liverpool fan, please write in. The UK, the first, uh, the book really was aimed at the UK market. Right. Uh, hence some of the lingo you will have noticed. Whereas this one uh, is going to be a, a rather more targeted at the, the Malaysian audience. So I'm going to talk to supporters clubs uh, here and get their views on, uh, on the big issues as well as people in the UK. So, Bob, you've been doing this for a very long time, and I was curious, when writing this book, when researching this book, was there anything that still surprised you, or was it a, was it a, was it a function of confirming long-held suspicions? Uh, the latter, yeah, pretty much, because I do follow it closely. That's right. Obviously, that's my job. So, yes, it did. I, I didn't quite realize that uh, there was the exotic stuff of the uh, Angolan diamond smuggler, and <laughs> right. I, I wasn't quite aware of that, that sort of stuff. But um, so that did surprise me. But basically, the uh, ignorance of some people and the competence of others um, was pretty much as I expected. Is there a clear cut answer to the question whether or not a fan should be an owner? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, well, you, you've got a couple, haven't you? Um, Tony Fernandez, Tony Fernandez, for example. Yep. Although, strictly speaking, he's a West Ham fan. That's and he right. tried to buy West Ham. So QPR was sort of second best. Um, but you see, his PR has been so good that even with two relegations, well, there was a promotion in the middle, so it doesn't sound that bad, uh, he still managed to keep the fans on side. And we saw his uh, performance as a, an airline boss when he, he lost the plane and that tragedy occurred, he handled it so well. Right. So this guy is a, he's a public relations master. And as I say, even though QPR have not done that well, the fans basically still are on side. Has there been a case of a major fan revolt? Well, Blackburn Rovers, I think, um, would, would be the one um, because they are, I think, anyone would vote them as the most clueless of all the owners. <laughs> They've taken them down two divisions. They've lost about 150 million quid on the way. Why they bought it, why they are still there, no one really has an answer for this. And, of course, we had the uh, intervention of uh, our own Chevy Singh, who didn't seem to help matters much, did he? Chevy gets a bit of a hard deal in your book, but I think it feels somewhat warranted based on all the news that was coming out at the time. Well, he gets he gets the hard deal uh, from other people, doesn't he? I I'm the the messenger here. Um, I mean, obviously, I have my own opinion, but uh, it was pretty clear what the Blackburn uh, fans thought of him. So, Bob, where can people find the book? Well, they can actually get it in one or two stores, uh, MPH, Kinakunia, and Popular. And uh, if they listen to the show, uh, they'll find out when the book signings are. And I'm going around doing these signings every week or so. The following weekend, I'm doing Manchester United versus Spurs, a big game at uh, Shanker's Pub, De Legends in Tamantoon. So if you, if you listen to the show and you read The Sun, I've got to give a plug, 
you'll find out where these book signings are. So that is augmenting the uh, normal uh, the normal sales in stores. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I've been speaking today to Bob Holmes. His book, Living the Dream or Enduring the Nightmare, can be found at all good bookstores. He'll be signing copies at the Legends in TTDI during the United Tottenham game on the 28th of this month. So head over there if you fancy meeting the man himself. Or you could just catch him every week on Thank Friday It's Football. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.